Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record, program number 1280. Interview number 17 with Jim Diodemio and John Newman about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on December 16th of the year 2022. And it is once again my great privilege and pleasure to bring back to our airwaves Jim Diodemio. And my added pleasure and privilege to uh, welcome, well, now after our first interview, welcome back, John Newman, uh, the author of many books and also a prominent commentator in JFK Revisited. And as we learned in our last hour, also a major contributor to Oliver Stone's original JFK movie. Gentlemen, welcome back to our airwaves. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Uh, John, we were schmoozing a bit between the interviews, and you mentioned something that I was not aware of, and I'd like to uh, maybe have you uh, share that with the audience, because I think it, it represents an interesting point of entry in the discussions of the Joint Chiefs, how they differ with JFK, and some of the things that we've already spoken of. Uh, tell us about the meetings of the JCS and the absence of surviving records on those. Well, we don't know exactly when they disappeared, but we know that by the time the Assassination Records Review Board came into existence, they were gone. And so there is a a point of contact, uh, whether it's military or CIA or FBI, for um, compliance. They call it compliance with the... Uh, uh, purview of of the ARRB, and uh, so the compliance people for the Joint Chiefs of Staff was the Joint Staff that worked for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and there was a gentleman who um, was the head of the compliance component um, at the time. The ARRB was there, and and so there was a. <laughs> A moment um, where they the the ARB asked for the records of the Joint Chiefs meetings, and the answer was uh, we don't have them. Well, then the ARB asked again. Uh, well, can you tell us when they were destroyed and under what conditions and who um, authorized it? And there was no answer. And that's where things stand today. Everything from 1948 all the, all the way up to the late 1970s, every single meeting of just the Joint Chiefs, now not with Joint Chiefs and other people, all the Joint Chiefs meetings have been destroyed. So we have no record of what it was that they were saying to each other in the privacy of their own company. Correct. Wow. That is, well, frightening and, and yet not altogether unexpected in the way things have uh, proceeded since that time. Uh, at near the end of our last interview, uh, John and Jim, we were speaking of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, whose assassinations within two months in 1968 pretty much paved the way for what has followed. In uh, JFK Revisited, there is discussion of Curtis LeMay, uh, perhaps the most uh, opposed to JFK of any of the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. We should remember, before we go into LeMay's behavior, that by 1968, when King and, and Robert Kennedy were killed, uh, Curtis LeMay was the vice president for George Wallace's segregationist presidential run. He also was working for a Southern California aerospace company headed up by a former Iron Guard general, the Iron Guard being the Romanian fascist movement that was aligned with Hitler. Uh, Jimmy John, uh, tell us about Curtis LeMay and uh, his behavior right around the time of the assassination when he was on a hunting trip. Well, John, why don't you get some background on LeMay? You probably have a better, you know, the whole thing about what he did in Japan, okay, et cetera. Yeah, and then you could pick up where. Yeah, I'll question, pick it up on the where, night, the, where yeah. the question was. Uh, but, but LeMay was a was a guy that um, he came out of nowhere, really, uh, and 
there were, there were a lot of problems, systemic problems in, in the Air Force, and he fixed all those things. And um, so he became a larger than life very early on in his career, and he became very quickly chairman of the Joint Chiefs. But even before that, uh, what he was doing was uh, the most dire thing you could imagine that would kill people. Uh, and this is in, in the Pacific theater in World War II. Um, so in, instead of um, worrying about uh, the actual military targets, and they were all over the place in, in the island hopping campaign that was going on at the time, LeMay wanted to go after the mainland. And, uh, and he did it to, in a terrible way. Firebombing, uh, you know, these cities. Um, and, and of course, later on, there's, there's Hiroshima, Nagasaki, uh, nuclear, uh, the first nuclear weapons dropped on, uh, civilian targets, uh, in the history of the world. But even before that, just as many people, uh, were, were killed by LeMay's uh, firebombing tactics. And, um, of course, they wanted to do the same thing, uh, in Europe. And they did a lot, uh, to, to, in, in Germany, for the same things. But, uh, it was particularly bad in, um, in the Far East and, uh, and people that, that ended up being, um, very powerful, uh, later on in the joint staff and then in the Pentagon. Birkenau is one of them, but he was a close friend of LeMay, uh, who came up under LeMay. And so the people that were with him during that period ended up dominating, um, not just the, the, um, generals who actually were uh, operating, you know, um, air wings and things like that, but, the, but the staffs, the, the air staff at, at in the Pentagon. And, uh, and of course, LeMay rose to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and, and after him, uh, crazy guy, uh, who was even crazier than he was, um, power, Dave Power. Um, anyway, I, I guess that's, uh, let me, let me uh, turn it over to, to you for, for the, the question that was posed, but that's, that's the, LeMay had a long distinguished career of killing civilian targets. See, and, and by the way, if, if you take a look at the conversations during the, uh, missile crisis, this is exactly what Kennedy is opposed to doing. Yep. When, when these people start talking about going in what they call surgical bombing, okay, of the missile silos, Kennedy asks them, well, okay, how many civilians are going to perish if you guys don't hit it surgically? Okay. And then every time he asks the question, the number goes up. Okay. So this is something that Kennedy doesn't want to do. He doesn't want to kill civilians. All right. And so what happens then, of course, is that LeMay and Kennedy have a big, well, you have to read it to believe it, where, <laughs> where, Kennedy has decided upon this quarantine, okay, all right, to quarantine the island. And LeMay's, LeMay says, Mr. President, we think this is as bad as what Hitler did, okay, during the Czechoslovak crisis, okay? And, of course, everybody knows what that is, okay? So <laughs> he essentially gave up, uh, Neville Chamberlain gave up. Uh, Czechoslovakia and suckered and Hitler suckered him and he took the rest of the country. Okay. You know, which is only LeMay could even think of saying something like that, you know, in, in, in front of a president. All right. And, uh, he says this is going to lead to a disaster. Okay. If it, and of course it ended up being successful. So LeMay also was for taking the war north in Vietnam. See, LeMay had this crazy idea that if you bomb people to death, that would speed up the war. It didn't matter how many people died. It didn't matter how many people died, okay, as long as you sped up the war by saturation bombing. So on the day of the assassination, LeMay deceives 
where he really is. Okay. He's really in Canada, but he told everybody he was in Michigan. Then when LeMay starts flying into Washington, okay, and you can hear his aide de camp, Dorman, asking him, uh, General, where's your location? And he asked him like three times, what's your location? And, and LeMay doesn't answer. And, and this is clear as day on these Air Force One tapes. All right. Then he breaks orders by not landing at Andrews Air Force Base. He lands at, uh, I think it's called National. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. National okay. Airport. All right. So, and he lands at the wrong air base. And then, of course, during the autopsy, Humes tells Paul O'Connor, will you please tell that guy over there in the corner to take, put that cigar away? Okay. All right. And so Paul O'Connor goes over, sees it at LeMay. LeMay blows a puff of smoke at him. All right. And he comes back and he tells Humes, uh, sir, that's Curtis LeMay. I can't tell him to put that cigar out. Okay, so as Doug Horn said in the film, was LeMay there in order to more or less kind of smile over the defeat of his nemesis? Well, we don't know, okay? But it's it's a very, very interesting chain of events, all right? Um, when you When you see, and by the way, that's the only time that Kennedy met with the Joint Chiefs during the whole two weeks of the missile crisis. That was the one meeting he had with them. Okay. And if you want to hear something very enlightening, read the Kennedy tapes after Kennedy leaves the room because they're basically laughing at him. They're like, you know, reviling him, you know, saying to LeMay, hey, you really got him on the spot, didn't you? That kind of stuff. See, this is why when I read that book, I thought back to John's uh, screenplay, the screenplay contribution for JFK. Because if you take a look at the scenes there where they're talking about Kennedy, but he's not there, that's the way they talked about him. <laughs> John wasn't using any poetic license at all. That's really the way they talked about him when he wasn't around. And when we talked to Richard Mahoney, who wrote a book called JFK Ordeal in Africa about Congo, he was telling Oliver, well, that's the way JFK felt about them. <laughs> he had these dirty names for every one of them, you know, which I can't say on the air. Okay, but that's what he thought of them also. All right, so this whole incidence, this incidence between LeMay, you know, on what on earth was he doing flying back to Washington on the day of the assassination, you know, I, I think it's of the greatest interest, and it's really a shame, a really dirty, rotten shame that he never was questioned about this under oath by anybody, the Warren Commission, the House Select Committee, and, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it's some, one of those things that, like, begs out for a solution, Okay. I think, it, Jim, it makes a very eloquent and, fr- frankly, unequivocal statement about LeMay's stance, uh, not only with regard to JFK as an individual, but his policies. Uh, with regard to the Patsy, Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, John, you in JFK revisited uh, parse some aspects of the monitoring of Oswald by the intelligence establishment. And what I'm going to do is to task you with breaking this down and presenting this to an audience, uh, most of whom are not as familiar with what a 201 file is or a flash notice, and to make what would be uh, opaque past the point of the average observer uh, transparent. Uh, tell us about Oswald and the way the FBI and CIA handled his files, 201 file, etc. Well, the 201 file in the CIA is a, a, an intelligence and counterintelligence file, so it can be a lot of things, but usually 
uh, is not it is not started on somebody or um, until there's two or three reports um, about that particular person. And once there's a uh, a number of them, then it's it's time to create a tool one file. So, but in Oswald's case, it's a little bit different. Um, because when Oswald defected in, in, um, October on actually uh, Halloween day in 1959, um, it generated, you know, a huge amount of documents about him, uh, from the Navy and, and, um, and, uh, the FBI. All over, there was just a huge amount of documents, plenty enough documents. Uh, and another reason for, for opening a tool one file would be on, on a defector and Oswald had defected. So all the criteria that for which you would get a tool one file opened, um, they didn't, they didn't open one on, on, on Oswald. Now at the same time, they began um, opening up his mail and his mother's mail. And, um, the, this particular program, which, um, had to be sort of done with a wink and a nod of the postmaster general, um, was, uh, a small program. Uh, the, 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 the envelopes, the mail were, Usually done at, uh, at the main airport in, I forget which one it was in, in, um, New York. And you've got three or four guys with irons in the middle of the night ironing open these, uh, these envelopes to look at what's inside. But it, the, at any, it, now later there were more people, but at the time of Oswald's defection, there weren't that many people on the list. And so, but he was. And so it's the strangest thing that you have somebody who should have a 201 file who does not. And yet he's so interesting that he makes the hit parade in terms of the mail opening program. Okay. So that's, that's part one. Part two is when they do open the 201 file on him. That happens at the end of 1960. And the reason it happens is because it's time for him to come home. There's more. On this and my uh, new pop-off book in terms of uh, uh, what Oswald's movements are and how they relate to, to various things. But um, in general, uh, I wrote about this subject in a couple of books of, of why we know uh, about when the 201 file was opened. It was opened because he had been instructed to come home. The story that we are presented with is he wanted to come home, and so he asked permission to come home, and eventually he got to come home, and it took 18 months. But what really happened was um, the, the 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 order for him to come home was made at a time. Um, when nobody actually knew where he was. They weren't supposed to know anyway. But there was a clandestine CIA source that did know where he was, and, and, and there are other examples of this. But anyway, at the time of the 201 file opening in October of 1961, um, that is what, that is what was happening. That somebody knew, um, that he wrote a letter saying, I'm, I want to go home and, uh, and I want to bring my wife and kids and so on. Well, um, what happens is that the KGB pinches that letter. And so it never reaches the U.S. embassy there. And, um, and so Oswald, uh, doesn't get an answer. 
And because the embassy can't answer because they didn't see it because the, the, the KGB pinched it. And so Oswald writes a second letter a few months later saying, you know, well, I've received no answer to my first letter, blah, blah, and, and so on. Well, along the way, uh, uh, after Oswald is murdered, his diary is changed to make it look like he never wrote the first letter. So um, there's some changes made to it so that you wouldn't know <laughs> that, that he was actually asking for what happened to my first letter. And there, so the first letter was was sent at a time when they knew he was supposed to come home. And so as soon as uh, he got the message and wrote the letter, it's when they opened the 201 file because he was coming home. <laughs> and um, so, but the um, the House Select Committee, which investigated this problem, <clears throat> um, had to deal with a guy by the name of uh, Tavares, a, a Greek guy who took over counterintelligence when Angleton was, James Jesus Angleton was fired. And Kolaris was just coming on board and he saw a, a, a document basically that said that the reason why the 201 file was opened on Oswald because he, of his, uh, request to come home. Oops. That wasn't supposed to happen. The CIA was not supposed to know that. Well, he said that. And so the House Select Committee had to decide what to do and they sided with the CIA and, and dis- disregarded that whole, <laughs> that whole story. Well, then, the Soviet Union falls in 1991. And, uh, there's a little honeymoon period where, you know, Westerners are allowed to, news agencies are allowed to see things and the KGB and CIA guys are sort of making up and talking to each other. And ABC News go, goes over there and there it is. You know, bigger than day is the first, they see the first letter. The KGB shows them the first letter former KGB. Uh, so it did exist all along. And and so there was this little, you know, uh, kabuchi uh, tale about how and why the, the 201 file on Oswald was open. And they didn't want people to know or anybody to know that there was communication going on between the CIA and Oswald. They had they had uh, clandestine sources there, and I have done others earlier. I've covered them all the way back, actually, in in, in the Oswald and CIA book, but 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 again in in later books. But I don't want to take up too much time here. Um, we had our own clandestine sources inside the Soviet Union, like they had clandestine sources inside the United States, and they used them, and uh, it was very sensitive and. So uh, Robert Blakey was a good guy, but nevertheless uh, thought that uh, he was helping to protect sources and methods. And, and the House Select Committee uh, bent and uh, and went ahead with the with the story that there was no first letter until <laughs> years later ABC News found it <laughs> and put it on TV one night. Um, Ed Koppel uh, and so on. So that's a funny story, but. Um, that's when, the, you know, when his 201 file was something that should have been open as soon as he defected. And it wasn't. And so they wanted to pretend like they had no interest in him. And uh, and so when it came time for him to come home and they needed to tell him to come home, they didn't want anybody to know that they were telling him to do things. Because if they had no interest in him, they wouldn't be telling him anything. Right. So um, anyway, I, I suppose I took a more, too much time with that story, but it's... Um, See, let, pleasantly uh, Dave, let me let me add something here, because one of the things that John did in Oswald and the CIA was to go ahead and outline this whole dichotomy between not having a 201 file, but being in the HT lingual program, which is very odd because the 201 Mail file. Mail intercept is, program, yeah. Yeah, the 201 file is a very common file in the CIA, 
whereas the HG Lingual program was very limited, you know, at, 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 at this time. And so what he went ahead and figured this all out about how Oswald's file should have gone one place, but it didn't go there. Instead, it went to this super secretive uh, compartment inside the Office of Security called SRS. All right. Now, l- let me add something to this, because John figured this out in 1995. He started working on it for the Frontline Special, and then he went ahead and, and, and completed his book. If the files would have been completely declassified, John wouldn't have had to do this. Because a woman named Betsy Wolf, working for the House Select Committee on Assassinations, this was her assignment to figure out Oswald's file. And so what she did is she asked for every charter in the CIA. I think there's like, John, are there nine divisions? I think there's nine divisions in the CIA. All right. And so she asked for every charter. She read through every charter. And then she did an imaginary graph of where Oswald's file should have gone. So then when she got the file, she saw, wait a minute, it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. So she starts interviewing people one after another. And she finally, at the end of 1978, she hit bingo. She talked to a guy named Robert Gambino, who was the... Office of Security chief at that time. And he explained to her, he said, look, it doesn't matter how many documents come in. It doesn't matter if they're pre-stamped. If the client has gone to the Office of Mail Logistics, which is the initial gatekeeper for incoming documents, that is where those documents will go. So in other words, Somebody had rigged Oswald's file so it wouldn't go where it should have gone and did go where it wouldn't go because, as Betsy also found out, OS doesn't open 201 files, okay, you know? And so this whole mystery, and I I, I get really angry even thinking about this. See, we would have been that far ahead of the game if Betsy Wolf's stuff would have been declassified or been part of the House Select Committee. And, oh, and I believe, John will correct me if I'm wrong. Betsy Wolf's stuff wasn't declassified from 94 to 98. Uh, Malcolm Blunt sent it to me. It had a date like of 2003 or something like that. And, by, and, and here's the capper. Here's the real capper. Her stuff was not typed up. In the memorandum form, it's really good. She had nice penmanship. Yeah, because it's all she handed, had wrote yeah. everything. You know? <laughs> so here, here, here's the mystery of Oswald, which the HSCA wouldn't tell us. And then John goes ahead and tells us, and then we figure out John didn't even have to do all that work. All he needed was his paper in front of him. That's what well, a mess this case is. Well, there's an addendum to all this, though. Um, with with what we've found out with this new volume four uncovering Popoff's mole. You see, I was the first one way back in the very first edition of Oswald and the CIA to draw attention to all the files on on Lee Harvey Oswald going to the Office of Security, which they shouldn't. They should have been going to the Soviet Russia division. And I wrote about that. Well, um along the way um, a guy who used to come over from England all the time and search around in, in, in the archives by the name of Malcolm Blunt saw my book and he saw that particular aspect of it that, you know, the, the, this, the, the fact that after Oswald defected, even actually before he defected, before he defected, everything was rerouted. Otherwise, if they waited till the defection, then they wouldn't have been able to stop it going to SRD, the Soviet Russia division. In order to, to, to get everything hidden in the office of security, the arrangements had to be made before Oswald defected, which they did. 
And so Malcolm was really turned on by this. And, and so he and I started corresponding. And when he was in Naruto and I was there, we'd meet in the, in the lunchroom and talk about stuff. And, and so over the years, we worked together on this and the final breakthrough, uh, cause I, I could go on you know, for, for another 20, 30 minutes of, of, of this year, of this year, this has been just recently, uh, when we discovered that uh, the, the mole was in the office of security and the mole found out that Popoff had said there was a mole. He knew there had to be a mole hunt. He knew that before the Oswald defection. And so the Oswald defection was part of the story and they had to have everything set up before he showed up in, in, um, Moscow. And so that's how it was arranged because at that point, it, the, the whole charade is not a false defection, uh, that was arranged by Angleton. We talked about, I did, most people did, we called it the Angleton mole hunt. That Angleton, the head of counterintelligence, started the hunt for the mole. He didn't do that. They weren't in on it. They were let in on it by the Office of Security. Bob Bannerman told me that, and it's in my my first book, Oswald the CIA, and I didn't understand what he was telling me. It was only... You know, a year ago when I began rereading all of this Bannerman stuff that I had, that it all made sense. So, you know, to make a long story short, um, it was the Office of Security who did the mole hunt. And for the people at the top of the Office of Security, they thought it was a real mole hunt. What they didn't know is that the mole hunter that was doing this was... Bruce Sully was actually the mole. So they thought he was, they didn't realize what he was doing. He was making a false mole hunt and directing Angleton to look over an SRD that the mole was over there because he needed to protect himself. He said, Oh yeah, the mole's over there in that place. And year after year would go by and the mole would never be found. 10 years, 20 years, the mole was never found. They brought Oswald home and they were still looking for, you know, the, the, the mole. And so it took, uh, and, and I, I will not take the time now. If you want to read how we figured this stuff out, you'll have to buy Popo's mole. All the gym was, uh, was, was there in, um, uh, uh, San Francisco when I gave a preliminary, um, a review of what it is we were finding on this. There were only about seven people there at the time, but, uh, that was well over a year ago. And, and then, you know, 15 months later is a book, uh, that put this all together and it just mushroomed from one thing to the next. But the office of security was, was the one that was behind the mole hunt and, it, and because Sully was in our SRS and he had the research um the research branch he was the one he was the one who had to do uh make the mole hunt <laughs> let, mole. let me add one other point here because this gets even better when malcolm had all of betsy wolf's stuff he was meeting at that time with a guy named pete begley oh, yeah. who was a very good counterintelligence officer uh, for a number of years. A lot of people think he was one of the best that, uh, that ever served. Without and a doubt. I think, I think he was in Brussels or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And so then they got together at this convention in the United States. Okay. And so they got to be friends. And so Malcolm shows him this routing system. Okay. Isn't this really weird, Pete? This is really bizarre. And so Pete looks at it and says, okay, Malcolm, was Oswald witting or was he unwitting? 
And he says, I don't know. How the hell do I know? I don't know. Take a guess. And he says, okay, unwitting. And he says, no, he was winning. He was a winning defector. So for the first time, we actually had a high-level CIA officer actually calling Lee Harvey Oswald a witting defector. What a moment of triumph after all these years. <laughs> you, know? you can find that. I, I published that in Into the Storm. I had I got that story at that time. But we still didn't know who the mole was. A political garment to Oswald as the Patsy in the assassination. Um, I'm wondering if you would explain to the audience and clarify what a flash notice is and how that relates to the FBI and CIA files on Oswald and how strange that is in light of his proximity to the motorcade booth. Well, as you move closer to the Kennedy assassination, the uh, it, it becomes more delicate, this, this whole business. Um, and so the problem was in the fall of, of, of 63, you know, you have this Mexico city trip and, um, and then you're going to have a, a parade in route in which the president is shot and Oswald's going to be on that parade route. Now, Oswald goes to Mexico City, talks to um, a KGB guy, Kostikov there. He's trying to get back to Russia again so for a two-time defector through Cuba. You could not imagine a, a scenario more radioactive and bad than all the stuff that, that the Oswald trip to Mexico City actually is. And if all that stuff was able to hit Washington, there's no way he would be allowed on the parade route. No way. Because that's the first thing they do. The FBI and the Secret Service remove anybody who has any inkling of being a possible bad guy from a, a presidential parade route. So that stuff could not Go could not be seen officially, and so um, it, in those records uh, in the CIA were hidden, hidden. They were not allowed to go into his tool one file. Not until after Kennedy was was shot and killed. So that was it was siphoned off in a special little uh, compartment over in the SAS staff, which had handled some Cuban stuff. And in the FBI, the FBI had a um, a uh, a situation where they had put out an alert uh, on on Oswald any incoming information on Oswald or uh, any any query about Oswald had to go to the espionage division of the of the FBI because he was considered dangerous and so at the same time that the CIA parked all the stuff, Oswald stuff that came out of Mexico City in a hidden place, somebody turned off the flashing red lights on Oswald and the FBI. They turned off the flash. That's what this is. It's a, they turned off the, um, the, the, the flash on Oswald was canceled at the same time that the CIA uh, parked his, his uh, credentials is, you know, <laughs> of meeting with uh, KGB guys in Mexico City and, and, and trying to redefect to, to Moscow. All that stuff was hidden in the CIA and it was had to be hidden in the FBI. So the FBI's cancellation, and by the way, Hoover had to punish the guy <laughs> who did it. His name was Marvin Giesling uh, in the FBI. Um, so that's, you had to turn off uh, Oz, any information on Oswald that was was uh, dangerous, that made him dangerous, in order that he could still be on the parade route to to, to be set up for the hit. John, wasn't it October the fourth? Wasn't that the day that was removed? I think. Uh, let's see. I think it was October the fourth. 
which is amazing in and of itself because Oswald's just getting back from Mexico City. Okay. And suddenly yeah. the flash goes off. Okay. Well, it's the same day that, that, uh, that everything is hidden on, um, in, in other words, the hiding Oswald's radioactive record, uh, is, 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 uh, suppressed both. I, I don't know the exact day. I can't remember right now. Uh, but it's, it's suppressed at the same time in the CIA as it is in the, in the FBI. So this is what allows, this is what allows Oswald to be in Dealey Plaza. Yep. You know, on the day of the assassination. That in and of itself was directly counter to established procedure. Of course. Right. Uh, in the, the documentary, John, uh, you speak about the a subject we covered uh, at, at, at some length. We spoke about it with Paul Blow last week, but the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, and you mentioned that that was established at the same time as Eisenhower ordered a covert operation to remove Castro. I wonder if you would uh, develop that for us, and then how Oswald and Bannister and the 544 Camp Street, 531 Lafayette Place office uh, figure into Oswald's activities in this regard. Uh, I'll be happy to talk about it. I mean, I wrote about it uh, way back in the first edition of Oswald and the CIA. I'm going to turn it over uh, a a little bit here to to Jim because I haven't followed up on things. I've I've helped Jim and others in, in making available the things that I did before, but Look, the 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 Fair Play for Cuba committee, the campaign against him goes all the way back to David Phillips, believe it or not, way back in the early 60s. Um, he was uh, doing illegal things. The CIA is not supposed to be uh, going around looking uh, at domestic U.S. citizens. And they were doing that with some uh, poor kid who was uh, uh, living over there near Langley somewhere who they thought was in the FPCC. It's fair, fair play for Cuba committee, right? That, uh, and, and so that goes along, motors along for, for a number of years simply because, um, you know, it, it's, 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 they're communists. And, and, and so, uh, we're, we're watching, we're watching them. And then there's nothing untoward other than the fact that it's illegal that <laughs> CIA people are, are monitoring domestic U.S. Uh, you know, uh, citizens. But along the way, but in the last year or so, uh, of Kennedy's life in 1963, the FPCC ends, ends up being a, a really nice cover for, um, or the stuff that they, they do with Oswald in New Orleans and, and later in Mexico City. So it's all being built around the FPCC, but it really isn't what's going on. That's just the cover story. It gives the FBI license to do things. It gives the CIA license to do things. It gives the, there are uh, organizations down there that, that, uh, that, that have to do with the, um, the, uh, it's a naval facility down there, uh, that Oswald uh, gets, <laughs> he goes, he's leafleting people and doing things. So there's a, there's a number of, of ways that, and there are people in, in the, the universities down there that are in the FPCC. So a hunt of the FPCC allows Oswald to go around and, and turn the light bulbs on, you know, and all these FPCC people. And, and so that's what it seems what, what it's like. But it really isn't. There's not too much to it. Uh, it's just used as, as a, uh, in, in various ways to, to, to break in to places and to get stuff and, and, and to keep tabs on Oswald, right? So that's his deal. He makes a, a, his own component to the FPCC in New Orleans, which is a one-man show, even though he pretends like it's a whole bunch of people. Um, and, and, you know, he does his own, um, makes his own cards and, and, and uh, up and is, is uh, you know, he, he 
does all these things that are, you know, on the street, getting into, getting into fights and doing this and that and other, making sure he's, he's, uh, making his, drawing as much attention to himself as he can. That's his job. It all started, by the way, back in January. I think we were talking about this, uh, Dave, um, offline, uh, at the very beginning of 1963. You asked me, you know, when, when was Oswald marked for this and I said the day he put the placard around his neck with Viva Fidel on it and that was in January 1963 when he went Cuban the operation was in play see the Oswald, PCC is just the is the is the you know the, the the continuing story of that see Jeff Morley this week when he was making his presentations he drew attention to the fact that those films of Oswald leafleting in New Orleans, they were injected into the news that night, that very evening, okay? And this was used to brand Oswald this sociopathic communist, okay, who, I mean, what kind of an idiot would go on the streets of New Orleans with these, you know, Fair Play for Cuba committee you know, there's placard around his neck and these flyers, you know, handing him out to people. And walking up to a big ship, a, a military ship, and leafleting <laughs> the guys as they came off the, off the ship. Right. And see, what John's book did, the first edition of Oswald and his CIA, it began to tell us that both the FBI and the CIA had anti-fair play for Cuba committee crusades going in 1962 and 1963. And so this is obviously, Oswald has all the earmarks of being an agent provocateur within that program. And as John mentioned, Phillips and uh, McCord were starting it out. And then uh, Deke DeLoach, I believe, was running it for the FBI. And so this is why the Warren Commission made a very stupid mistake and they put, I believe in volume 25, they put the Corliss Lamont flyer right there with the address 544 Camp Street on it. So Jim Garrison takes a look at this. He walks over to 540. Holy, this is incredible. This is where Guy Bannister's office was. You know, in the summer of 1963. And so then later, Tony Summers uh, got uh, Roberts, Delphine Roberts. This is a very interesting story. He wanted to talk to her about the whole Guy Bannister thing. He met her at her his her attorney's office. And he was one of these right-wing John Birch Society guys. And he says, don't, don't, don't tell him about this stuff. So then it starts raining, as it always does in the afternoon in New Orleans. Summers goes and gets his car. He drives around out of the parking lot, and there's Roberts standing in the rain. And he invites her into the car. I'll give you a ride home. No hard feelings, okay? And so she jumps in the car, and he said about two minutes later, she began crying. And she says, I don't want to cover this stuff up anymore. Okay. And she spills out the whole story about Oswald coming in to Bannister's office and about Bannister giving him uh, his own private little dwelling to go ahead and start making up these flyers, et cetera. So that's how that story eventually evolved. Okay. And as John says, it's perfect for when Oswald gets back from Mexico City. Because now not only do you have this sociopathic loner, you have this guy who's talking to both the Cubans and the Russians down in Mexico City. And this ends up being a great pretext for Johnson to bring Warren into a job he never wanted to do. Okay, Warren really did not want this job. Okay, but Johnson says, well, I've got these CIA files Oswald was at the Cuban embassy. You really want 40 million people to die in two hours? Okay. And this is, and so Warren was, it was reduced to tears and he took this lousy job. Well, okay. can I just add to that? Sure. That in, in, um, uh, in, it was in, 
WETA, the local public radio um, the TV station here in Washington, D.C., Earl Warren uh, went on, on television and told that story about how the how, how Johnson told him that, that there were going to be 40 million uh, Americans that could die because um, Bobby Kennedy twice had asked uh, him to 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 take the job as the head of the commission. And of course he didn't want to do that because he's, he's, he's in the judicial system, right? Not supposed to do that. What if, what if you know, what happens if there's an appeal? So anyway, um, uh, when, when, when LBJ, and you can hear him on the tape, you can hear his, his scotch glass with the, with the, with the ice cubes in it clinking as he, he boasts about, about having told uh, told this uh, story and uh, to Warren. And so Warren uh, and LBJ says, when he tells the story that Warren broke down in tears and, and, and said he would go along with it. Well, Warren tells the same story. The only thing he doesn't, he doesn't say he cried, but he, but Warren's statement on WETA television was, when the president put it that way, he said, well, Mr. President, if it's that bad, I, if it's that bad, I'll have to take the job. That's what he said on TV. <laughs> now, see, th- th- this poses the question. This poses the question. Did Johnson really believe this stuff? You know, I mean, with that. No, that he was- said he didn't. <laughs> he didn't? <laughs> he said, I don't believe it, but it's, you know, this is what they're saying. This is what they're saying. <laughs> and I don't really believe this, but we got to deal with this. That's, but he didn't say that to Earl Warren. No, That's no. What he said to uh, a couple, you know, uh, Senator Russell, you know, when Johnson was drunk through this whole time, time period, you can, you, you can, you, you can tell on these tapes. It's, 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 if it wasn't part of a, an assassination, it, it, it would be funny, but it's, it's not funny. Johnson knows that something's going to happen. He doesn't know all the details, but he knows that it's, you know, burst got him ready. But that's another thing that's going to be coming out in, in um, Armageddon. I've got the goods on that. I have, you know, nobody's really looked at the story of how, who handled the president, this drunk guy who stayed drunk most of the time how they handled him as president of the United States and got him ready for this, for the assassination of Kennedy. But the, incongru- the incongruity of the third place of Cuba committee and the ultra right winger. And by the way, former FBI agent guy Bannister uh, figures into the, the handling of one of the uh, 544 camp street, Oswald pro Castro Leaflets. Uh, something that the address was scratched out. Was it not before the the FBI uh, got uh, notice of that? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a couple of them, but 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 Jim's right. There's there's one that is absolutely in the clear that has the Camp Street address on it. Most of the rest of them have been destroyed, or you can see it scratched out. But uh, one one got through at least. Yeah, see, this is one of the things that John did, is that he saw that, hey, the FBI knows something is wrong here, okay? And they're they're etching out this address, so they don't want to give it away. But one did slip through. You know, God bless those people who read 25 volumes and finally got, you know, to 544 Camp Street, you know? So it's very, very incriminating about what the FBI was doing to try and conceal that. You know, they, they knew their old buddy was there. Okay. And then, of course, you throw in people like Debris, who spoke Spanish. And I think Regis Kennedy spoke Spanish also. All right. And those are the guys that Hoover put on that anti-Castro Cuban exile beat. Okay, in order to try and, and monitor them and know what the heck was going on, know what the CIA was doing, you know. How did the Warren Commission handle uh, Guy Bannister? They didn't. Exactly. They didn't. The, 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 the FBI uh, took a statement from Bannister, which you can you can very much see as Bannister wrote it himself. He doesn't even mention Oswald, doesn't even mention the flyer or anything like that. Okay. 
And that, I don't think that actually made it into the volumes. That was declassified later. Okay. So it's, it's, it's very clear that the FBI knows that something is up here that we have to try and conceal. All right. Because it'll give a, a heck of a lot away. You know, if we, if we expose this thing, uh, you have this communist going into this right wing nuts lair. Okay. <laughs> with all these Cuban exiles there. Uh, something that's very interesting, that we've spoken about it before, but Otto Opetka of the State Department, uh, what was he looking into and what happened to him? Why don't you take that one, John? Yeah, I will, but, you know, there's not too much to say because uh, that's mostly not the, – the, the only person I know had this uh, on this is uh, Joe Bacchus because he went to um, – an archive that had uh, most of the Otepka stuff, much of which was destroyed, by the way. But Otepka was clearly interested in the, in the Oswald case. And, and the question is why, you know? And then you have the whole return of Oswald to the United States, which took 18 months. And, of course, the State Department is very much involved in that. And so Tepka is in the security portion of the State Department, and he is the guy who's kind of puts out fires, I think, keeps everything moving. But, um, you know, uh, a lot of it's hard to get a whole lot of stuff on him, even though he was head of security um, in in the State Department. I didn't know they got they got rid of his stuff. I didn't know that. No, not all of it, but there's there's a lot of stuff that is missing. It's not there. Wow. They, they, they mentioned uh, that there, there was discussion in the film of, of some of this material being burned. They tried to say that he did it. And one of the things that I think is so interesting, and this in the context of what you have already related about Oswald, <clears throat> the multi-layered pseudo-defection in which he engaged, and and also obviously the maneuvering of him as the Patsy in Dallas. But on November fifth of nineteen sixty three, just over two weeks before the assassination, Otepka is fired. Yeah, that that's a really amazing coincidence, isn't it? Okay, three weeks three weeks before. Yeah. Well, uh, you and, need and, to, again, you need I, to turn off that light bulb, you know. Uh, so yeah, it makes sense. There's a lot that there, there was a lot there, but uh, nobody has really paid too much attention to it. I don't think that in the certainly the Warren Commission didn't, and and I don't think that that the uh, either the Senate Select Committee or, or House Select Committee did too much with it. There, they, there they, was, they, they visited doing they, other things. They visited Otepka at his house, but they didn't call him as a witness. And if you can believe it, the Warren Commission didn't call him as a witness either, you know. Yeah, so there's just not not been enough, you know, going on. And, and obviously, Otepka knew a lot about what was happening. And the State mm-hmm. Department did, too, uh, because the State Department was, well, that's who's who the consulate works for, right? The, the, all the people that Oswald's interacting with are State Department people. Yeah. Okay. We are almost out of time. And obviously we've, we've covered as much as we could in two hours. Uh, there is more to be learned. And, uh, in addition to the two and four hour versions of the documentary and the accompanying book, there are books by, uh, John Newman. I wonder if you would uh, wrap things up for us by talking about those. I would just uh, say um, right now, if you if you have a decent background, I would say jump into um, uncovering Popoff's mole because that is where the rubber meets the road right now in in the investigation of the case. If if you're not uh, an aficionado, I would I would go back to JFK and Vietnam and Oswald and the CIA and start from there and move forward. There's, I I wouldn't want to, to tell anybody to read eight books. <laughs> you know, if, if I can make a recommendation, 
If you want to get somebody a Christmas gift, get them the revised version of JFK in Vietnam. Okay. Remember when I, Jim, do you remember when I, when I told you that, that you had to read that book? Yes. Yeah. The first first time I talked to you. I know, I know, I know, but (laughs) now I'm talking, now I'm telling you again, you got to, you got to read this, this pop-up book, man. You got to read it. The very first time, the very first time I talked to John. Okay. Jim, we're all out of time. Oh, we so have to get out? Have to, okay, fine. Yeah, we, we gotta wrap it up. I, I do think though that you, uh, the two of you may, uh, find yourselves the focal point of a labor dispute from Santa's elves and reindeer <laughs> in light of all of the, all of the gifts that you are, uh, uh mandating them to, uh, deliver on Christmas Eve. In any event. Uh, this concludes for the record program number 1280, interview number 17 with Jim Jamie and John Newman about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on December 16th of the year 2022. For Jim Jamie and John Newman, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.